You are listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the Executive Vice President and GM at Wiley, Todd Zipper. Hello, I am Todd Zipper, host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Gerald Shertavian, founder and CEO of Year Up. Through his nonprofit, he aims to close America's opportunity to divide by ensuring young adults gain the skills, experiences, and support to reach their potential through higher education and careers. Gerald's commitment to working with young adults spans more than 25 years. In 1999, he sold his technology company, Conduit Communications, and left his career on Wall Street to help low-income, at-risk youth. A year later, in 2000, Europe was born. Gerald holds a BA in economics from Bowdoin College and an MBA from Harvard Business School. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of his book published in 2012 called A Year Up. The key takeaways from our discussion today. First, Europe's leadership in operationalizing emerging talent at scale by combining workforce and youth development. Second, how the organization has caused the largest proven sustained wage gains for young adults in the U.S. Third, how Europe provides high support and high expectations through its multimodality three-stage program. Fourth, why social capital and building higher socioeconomic connections are critical to talent career success. And lastly, Europe's virtuous ecosystem approach of bringing young adults and employers together through skills-based hiring. Hello, Gerald, and thank you for speaking with me today on An Educated Guest. Great. Thanks for having me, Todd. I'm excited to learn about everything you're doing through Year Up, but first, let's go back to how it all started. Tell us about your background and the story behind Year Up and why you started it. So the story behind Year Up really starts with the Big Brothers program, which I've been part of the Big Brothers now for 40 years. I started when I was 18 years old being a big brother, and when I moved to New York after college, I joined up for the Big Brothers in New York City and was matched with a young boy, 10-year-old boy, whose uh, family came from the Dominican Republic, and he happened to live in what was then the most heavily photographed crime scene in New York City. So that was in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, the height of the crack and AIDS epidemic, which was literally ravaging communities. And I ended up spending every Saturday of my life for the next almost three years with this young boy in that housing development. And frankly, after those three years, my life was different. And I saw through the eyes of David, who is part of our family today for all intents and purposes, I saw how incredibly talented he was, how motivated, how much ambition he had, as did his four brothers, and also what was limiting his potential, which were the, all the wrong things. It was like the zip code he lived in, the bank balance of his mom, the color of his skin, and indeed the school system he attended were truly limiting his opportunities in this country. And I remember thinking, boy, that is wrong. It's on every level, financially, socially, democratically, economically, and I thought we could do something about it. And really it was out of that experience that the idea back in the late 80s, that Year Up was born to try to close that opportunity divide that impacts so many young people in our country. What an amazing story. And so you've been at this for over 20 years now, really a pioneer in this, in this workforce training space, like you said, you know, bridging the, the divide. So really kind of 
help us understand, you know, the history and the makeup of what, for now, the space that you sort of operate in, you could define it however you want to. You know, I'm thinking about it as sort of workforce training. You're an alternative to a college or a complement to a college experience. So maybe you can explain the this call it the space, the eco, the higher education ecosystem that you live in, in your world now. Yeah. And how Europe really fits into it all. Sure. Well, it's changed quite a bit, as you can imagine. When we started Europe, I remember talking to foundations and they would say, are you youth development? Are you higher education? Like, what do you do? And I was saying, well, we're part workforce development, part youth development, part workforce development. And they said, you don't fit anywhere. And the reason, Todd, is back then, it wasn't perceived possible that low-income young adults could be trained for career jobs, jobs that paid livable wages. So most of the efforts around youth development or workforce development were aimed at maybe you could get to security, fast food, retail, but they weren't aimed at technology jobs that pay significant wages. Those jobs were reserved for folks who had been to four-year colleges. And so back in the startup year up, people really didn't know where to place us, what we did, and we had to work really hard to get started. And it's just been so amazing to see over the years how this industry is now developing such that emerging talent, right, those who have yet to earn a four-year degree, companies are figuring out how do you operationalize emerging talent at scale? How do you make that sit alongside campus recruiting, which is well-established, well-oiled, how does emerging talent, how do you operationalize that? How do companies lean into outreach, hiring, retention, advancement of individuals who may often come from underrepresented backgrounds, who may not yet have gotten a four-year degree? And how do you build that as part of your talent acquisition for your company? That is a whole new industry that is thriving today with hundreds of organizations involved in that, many for-profit, which is not a bad thing, but does give me some concern. And it's creating many more opportunities for individuals to combine earning and learning at the same time, to do payworthy and creditworthy activity at the same time, which is the norm in this country, right? The average person who goes to college in America today works 30 hours per week. It's unbelievable, right? So we think about college as you go fixed time, four-year, residential, that is not the experience for the majority of Americans, and therefore we can't design systems that play to a vast minority of this country as opposed to the majority who has to feed their bellies at the same time they feed their brains. Yeah. A lot of great stuff in there, and I'm not going to unpack it all right now. But one of the things that I, I want to get started on, because I talk a lot about outcomes on this report, accessibility, affordability, and I look for entrepreneurs, if you will, leaders that are, are right at the epicenter, and there's no doubt that you are. But I wanna make that clear to the audience because one of the things I read in your annual operating budget, which is online, you're a not-for-profit, you make all this stuff public, you spend about $170 million a year from what I understand. And a study that I believe you did showed that for every dollar invested in Europe equates to $2.46 back to society, very precise. I like that return on investment. So can you talk about that and how you think about all of the money that you're investing in youth and sort of how that comes back in terms of this, some kind of ROI calculation here? I just saw so it really fascinating to read that. 
Sure, and we, just to back up, we were studied for 10 years by the federal government through a process called randomized controlled trial, the complete highest level of social science evaluation that you could possibly put an organization through. But at the end of it, it absolutely proves or disproves causality. Did your program cause the result or the outcome that you're claiming? Many nonprofits talk about doing things, but unless you've done a randomized controlled trial, it's very hard to prove beyond any shadow of doubt that you are causal and your program causes the results you claim to get. And so what I'm so proud of is through this 10-year study with thousands of individuals, Europe has proven the largest increase in wages, in sustained wage gain for low-income young adults. We've done that more than any other program in the history of the United States. So the results of Europe are purely increased earnings for those who need to earn more wages, undeniable, largest increase in the history of the United States, and it's causal. We cause that to happen through the intervention, through the program. But there are lots of other impacts. When you earn money, guess what? You pay taxes. That helps our federal government. When you're stable, when you're secure, you rely less on public assistance. You have greater health outcomes. So a lot of factors combine that say, what is the return on this program, not only from increased wages for young people, but reduction of negative costs, increase in tax revenue, reduction in the consumption of public assistance, these all combine to get this return for every dollar we invest, and this will continue to grow. Right now it's $2.46, but as we track our students over years to come, that's going to keep growing because the results of this program continue to deliver benefits for our graduates. And, you know, what's interesting is, is Todd, is what we do is we reduce risk for both the employee and the company. So young people can come to year up and know, if I work hard, if I play by the rules, I am very likely to get a job that right now averages more than $50,000 per year. That's a good outcome. And you can look at 40,000 students who have been through this program who've gotten excellent outcomes. And at the same time, the employer knows that if I work with someone from this program, they'll be well-trained, they'll be professional, they would have received the support that they need, and there'll be a transition into my workplace. So it reduces the risk of the employer to partner with a program like Europe to give them better access to high-quality talent. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And there's a couple of quotes I've we've gleaned from the internet that you've said. So I want to read one of those and then talk about the Europe learner. So we are wasting so much talent in a country where we have no one to waste. Well said. So help us understand this talent. Who is these young adults you're talking about here? Can you give us a sense? I mean, you've, you've been hitting on it, a few of the things, but what's their ages or how are you thinking about this group of folks and, and where do you find them? Sure. So we've served more than 40,000 young people whose ages are largely between 18 and 29, although the vast majority between 18 and 24. We recently extended our age group up to 29, but for most of our history, it was 18 to 24. 90% of our students identify as people of color. So African-Americans are the largest single group in the organization, followed by Hispanic or Latino. And let's see, it's probably a Breakdown about 45% female, 55% male in terms of the gender breakdown. 
And most of the students, when they come to Europe, have been either unemployed or underemployed, and therefore earning at best minimum wage. And some have tried college and often dropped out because of financial reasons. Very, very few have earned any post-secondary degrees. But many have tried college and just couldn't sustain it, largely because they couldn't afford to pay for it. But what they do have is a ton of motivation, a ton of grit to succeed. They just lack access to the economic mainstream of this country. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. So I want to hit on one of the quotes you said earlier about learners should feed their bellies before they feed their brains. That's a powerful and also obvious quote. And I was just reading, I think it was something like Brown University is now up to when you tack on all the fees, eighty-five dollars or $86,000 a year, right? So that's when you add everything together, right? That's just one school, but it is so expensive to go to college. And there's so many variables that come into play, right? That you have to get fed, you have to get housed, you have all these factors coming in. And so how are you all thinking about tackling the whole learner almost? I'm not sure how to even think about it, but it seems like you're really thinking about this from like a 360 degree. Do these folks need childcare maybe? <laughs> what are the things that they ultimately need to be successful in this program? Totally. It's a great question. There's three things they need. And before I describe those, the guiding principle behind Year Up is high support coupled with high expectations. We don't dumb down anything. We expect our students to work hard and to do well. We expect them to tackle rigorous, challenging work. And we support them resolutely in achieving the performance that we know they can achieve. So three things that we do well. We help students learn both marketable skills, call it cybersecurity, data analytics, software engineering, high-value customer service, so a hard skill, something there's a market for. They then learn a set of professional skills. So how do you, what I call the ABCs, the attitudinal, behavioral, and communication skills, commensurate with professional work. The students are learning both of those. They're also working with our support staff to understand what type of wraparound support services might they need. You reference some in your question. It could be access to childcare, transportation, many types of problem-solving. Housing obviously is a significant issue for many of our young adults, so we do wrap support around them. And then the third thing we do is really make sure that we help them transition to a professional work-based experience. So for much of our history, there was six months of training. We call that learning and development. And then six months of a work-based experience. Think of that as an internship or apprenticeship that the student could take what they learned, put it into work, and therefore the employer would get a chance to see that young adult for who they are, for what they could do, for their competencies, for their attitude, not just their degree, the lack of which may have meant they never got a chance to demonstrate their potential and show an employer what it is that they could do. So that is the, how we've worked. And you know what's held true across 40,000 young adults in 20 plus years regardless of where a young adult's coming from, regardless of what city, whether it's gender, ethnicity, age, people need the same things in life. And it's not unique. It's the same things you needed when you were growing up. It's the same things I needed when I was growing up. It's just for some of our young adults in this country, we have often systematically ensured that they do not get access to that type of preparation, support, and high expectations, and they deserve it. Yeah. 
So powerful. And I was reading recently that the average college student that sort of gets the job in the area they want to is not, let's say, underemployed. There's a few factors that go into that. And you've kind of hit on those. One of them is an internship, right, where they've shown demonstrated skill in that area. Another is a credential in that area, not just a degree, but something that sort of certifies them in some way. And then, of course, the completion of the program. So it seems like you're really hitting on those areas, which is fantastic. But I just want to make sure I fully understand the program come to life. So you mentioned, I think, two of the phases of the program. I think there might be three phases from what I've read. Maybe I'm misheard. And also timelines. So, you know, so we know the average college degree expected to be four years as a bachelor, two years for an associate. How are you thinking about that? Again, I've, in the beginning of the conversation and try to box you into like comparing yourselves to uh, college, let's say, you guys have really created something unique here. But how do you think about timelines and sort of the phases that that individual goes through? Sure. And you're right. The three phases, you have learning and development, which ranges now between three and six months. We are learning something. And the reason it's different is some students already have some of the skills, some of the marketable skill, and therefore we don't need to reteach that. So you could complete that training or that learning and development more quickly and then for some young adults, you don't need a whole six months before the employer decides, do I want to hire you full time? So think of learning and development phase one, internship phase two, really phase three is you're a graduate. You now become part of our alumni association, and that's a membership for life where you get access to a whole range of services, supports, as well as a community that is a powerful network that you can now invest in and draw upon for the rest of your life. So that alumni phase is, is really the longest phase of the program. And last year we served more than 7,000 alumni, whether it was ongoing post-secondary education, career advice. So we've set up a whole series of programs and support systems for our graduates to continue to draw on at any point in their careers going forward. In just to go back to your question, part of what we have to do is change our narrative in this country. We somehow think that people go to college at 18, graduate at 22, and get a job, and it's sequential. That is just not the reality. In fact, less than 10 out of 100 Americans go to school at 18, graduate at 22 with a four-year degree. So less than 10 out of 100. Even if you double it, you're at 20. There's still 80% of the U.S. population that doesn't do that. And so we've got to be so much more thoughtful as employers to say there's great talent out there that doesn't yet have a four-year degree. Let's get them enough skills so they can be economically valuable, make sure they're career ready, and then as they're working, they will complete more post-secondary education. They will get those degrees. One of our graduates, Brandon Lavelle, graduated from Harvard Business School, right, after he finished year up and worked at Accenture for a number of years. We have graduates who are entrepreneurs, elected officials. Many, many have earned their degrees. But you cannot earn a degree if you're worried about what do I eat today? Where do I sleep today? Do I have the appropriate clothes because it's cold in the winter? And so what we have to do is develop the systems that are conscious of the reality for most Americans, which is you need to do payworthy and creditworthy activity at the same time. It's not sequential, it's concomitant. 
Yeah. I really just want to underscore how powerful this phase three is that you even put a number on it, the number of alumni or students really you served. And I think that's fantastic. We need more of that in our post-secondary system because to your point, the process never stops. Their career needs and trajectory never stops. And they're probably not fully ready when they get out of the phase one and phase two of your program. So that is just just wonderful to hear. I want to talk a little bit about so their modality. I know that you all have, I think it's roughly 30 locations, which is interesting to hear. A lot of them on college, university campuses, some on employers, like I believe in Pittsburgh on the site at BNY Mellon. So maybe you can talk through how does some of that training happen virtually, in person, at employer site, at university site? There's a lot going on there to unpack. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. So up until the pandemic, we had just started to experiment with various types of remote and hybrid learning. But for the first probably 15 years of our lives, everything was in person. But we can better meet the needs of our students by also recognizing where can a hybrid model work? Where can we use remote platforms to help a student maybe come in two days a week, three days a week, but they can learn some of this and participate in the program in part remotely as well. So we've been partially as a necessity of the pandemic. We had to shift to 100% remote overnight. And actually, it worked pretty darn well. We still believe a certain amount of this has to happen in person. But actually, our young people build community online. They work in digital spaces much better than folks who may be a generation ahead of them in terms of age. And so what we've now learned in our employing is that we can use technology much more aggressively in our program. We can use some outside technical training. We partner with one organization called Pluralsight, which is a great platform to learn technical skills. But also when a company like BNY Mellon says, we love you so much, why don't you open up inside of our organization? Because we want first dibs on this talent, which we do in Pittsburgh and all the power to them. They've been a great, great partner. And so we are evolving to try to meet young people where they are versus say there's a one-size-fits-all answer for every young person in the country. So for instance, some may need more of a remote and hybrid model because of their own personal situation. Could be with childcare or parental care. Someone may have already gotten a fair degree of hard skill and really just needs that professional skills, wraparound support, and transition to a job. So our goal is to evolve our model to meet the individual where they are, and also to partner with some organizations who may already be doing some of the training, but don't have those critical connections to work, to employers, and don't provide the support services and professional training that we have become, I think, well-known for across the country of doing that job really well. So we've talked a lot about you know, skills and competencies, and I read this quote from you about skills and competencies are important, but so is building up a person's social capital. So I'd love to hear you talk more about that. It absolutely resonates. How do you think about social capital? How do you think about building that for your year up students and graduates? Really important question. Let's start with one fact that 80% of all job interviews are gotten through a personal connection, right? In the last few weeks, I'm sure someone has emailed you, Todd, and said, hey, this person's applying for a job. Can you put in a good word? Can you try to get their resume to the front of the pile? That happens all the time. It tends to privilege white networks very often. And so one of my good friends, Raj Chetty, who's an economist at Harvard, one of the best economists in the world, 
He's done a great deal of study around the value of social capital. And what he's proven is that if you take two individuals, everything else being equal, if one individual has just one relationship with someone from a higher socioeconomic level, so both of these individuals starting out in a low socioeconomic level, if one of them has just one connection to someone who's from a higher economic level, they're significantly more likely to get out of poverty, to get to increase their own station. And it shows that isolated, segregated pockets of low-income neighborhoods who don't have connections to others who may work in professional settings in higher income jobs, you're at a significant disadvantage. And it's one of the things Europe does great at because now when you go into this internship after studying, you're meeting all these people who work in places like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Salesforce, Microsoft, BNY Mellon, and therefore building a network that can support your ongoing career advancement. And so we believe we teach our students how to network. We encourage them when they get into their internship to build strong networks, to ask people out for a quick coffee, to share 20 minutes of lunch, to build your network is the way that, frankly, you will get ahead in this country in one of the support systems that helps you to get ahead in this country. I think that's so wonderful. And most people can do that, right? This is not like you have to learn how to code in Java. <laughs> there are ways to, and it teaches probably new skills also just within interpersonal skills, communication skills as you're building that network out. So I think that's wonderful that you guys are doing. So I want to I want to stay on this theme, you know, as you're thinking about, we talked a little about this life after year up and, and this phase three, I read somewhere that you all have what's called an educational success plan. That sounds incredible. Like, how do you think about that? I know there's some, maybe some stuff you could do with community colleges. So maybe you can talk a little about that in your phase three. So I start with 80% of our graduates are employed within four months of graduation. And on average, they earn about $50,000 a year, a little bit more than $50,000 a year. But that's just the platform that allows you to now get keep investing in your own education. So they have a range of tools that we provide to them. It could be free online upskilling options from people like Cisco Networking Academy, Grow with Google, IBM Skills Build, and Pluralsight. So if you want to build your credentials, your skills, right, your certificates. We also have free community college through a partner, Eastern Gateway Community College, that offers a wide range of associate degree programs. We have a partnership with Northeastern University's College of Professional Studies. So we're always promoting for our young people and putting front and center, what are you doing to continue to sharpen your saw, to build your skills, to earn the degrees that you want? So that is an ongoing activity. We also, through our wholly owned public benefit corporation, UPRO Placement, have a career support career development, effectively a placement firm for any graduate who wants to come back to UPRO placement and say, I'm looking for my next gig. I want to move to a different part of the country. I want to shift careers, whatever. They serve, oh goodness, last year, well over a thousand of our alumni and help them to find that next job. Or if they got hit with, say, a layoff or something bad happened, how do they then get back in the workforce? And UPRO placement is perhaps one of the best regarded, highest growing 
placement firms in the country with kind of net promoter scores off the charts. They do a great job of placing talent into companies, and they work with year-ups graduates, as well as opportunity talent from some other programs that we believe have similar types of standards as year-up. Oh, that's fantastic. So you, as an entrepreneur, built a service that was needed by your graduates, essentially, by your alumni, because of course their career isn't going to be in one company that they join afterwards. So that business model is kind of a standard placement business model, right? That's exactly right. No fee to the individual. And here's the cool part about it. So I remember I was just getting a little bit upset that for-profit placement companies and staffing firms were taking our graduates and making a margin on them. I said, wait a minute, we love these young people way more. We know them way better. And so I said, let's start our own placement company. And two gentlemen put in the debt, million dollars of debt to capitalize the organization. It's now about a $25 million organization. And they donate a portion of their profit back to year up. In fact, this year, UPro Placement donated more than $300,000 back to Year Up Alumni Association. How cool is that? Total virtuous cycle, and it's what we always dreamed about, is to build a, a placement firm that could ultimately help support the long-term needs of our alumni and help to fund the long-term provision of services to our alumni. Yeah, absolutely, because you know, your work doesn't need to stop when they're 22 years old and out of your program, so that's, it's wonderful to see. So you've just made a great segue. You've mentioned some employers, and this is how I learned about Europe in some of the really amazing partnerships that you've you've done. So I really want to jump into this and sort of understand what you mean by when you say to close this divide, you have to work with employers to change how they hire. So what are you doing besides providing that education? How are you partnering with these employers? Maybe you can dig a little bit deeper, and then I want to get into some of the specific ones that have really become very public-facing. Sure. There's two things that I'd highlight there. The first is, what are the range of practices, think about talent management practices, that an employer uses to outreach, hire, retain, and advance talent? And so through our subsidiary, Grads of Life, we've done a great deal of research on, well, which practices lead to equitable employment, that lead to inclusion, And then we can have those companies do an assessment that says, how am I doing against research-backed, evidence-based practices that lead to positive outcomes, specifically for folks who have been underrepresented and who don't yet have a four-year degree? So that set of tools we developed, many, many big companies use that to get a baseline of where are they against the best practices that are out there. So that's one, like a company looking at what do we do. So I'll give you an example. Many companies have a tuition reimbursement policy. Well, guess what? You can't get reimbursed if you don't have any money to spend in the first place. So for someone coming in from a lower income background, looking to pursue higher education, you need tuition advancement. Very simple practice, right? What's the practice of the company? Another could be how mentors get assigned and matched to individuals. We know by research it is much harder often for people of color and women to get access to mentoring in an organization, which are still typically heavier with white males as you go up the food chain. So what am I intentionally doing in the company to manifest positive mentoring relationships for all of my staff? So that's an example of those practices. Other area I'd mention is how do frontline managers 
and supervisors manage diverse talent. And for many managers, there's lots to improve and learn about managing diverse talent. So we offer a range of supports, training for companies who want to invest in helping their managers to manage a pluralistic society and to do that effectively, equitably. So also what we do through Grads of Life, our subsidiary, is when an employer says, boy, I'd love to, I'm getting a lot more diverse talent, but I want to make sure we're managing that talent in the very best manner. How do I keep building my management capacity? We help employers do that as well, right? Because look, it's, it's not just about hiring. Most people of color would say getting in was the easy part. The hard part was sticking around because they didn't have an equitable, inclusive journey. And therefore, companies need to continue to evolve and to adopt the most equitable practices where every person in that organization feels like they're treated equally, they belong, they're included, and therefore they can give their best selves, they can be engaged, and they can help the company delight its clients and hopefully its shareholders. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic. This skills-based hiring approach that you do, I mean, how do you equip your learners, your graduates going up against, I mean, they're getting some of these high-paying jobs, these technical jobs. How are you equipping them to sell against, if you will, some of their competitors that are looking for those jobs with a college degree? Like, what are the tools that you're giving them so that they show that they are skilled enough to do the job? Totally. So through our training, we're truly helping students to write resumes in a skills-based way. That's one place to start to help them practice scribing their competencies and skills, right? If you don't know what I can do, it's hard for you to utilize me well. So how do students articulate what skills they have? And then from the employer side, what we encourage our employees to do is three things, to review their job descriptions and to mitigate degree inflation, right? So which jobs do you require a four-year degree for that you do not need to have a four-year degree to have that job? So once you do that, you've got to be intentional about building pipelines into talent from places that may not typically have four-year degrees. So if you only go to a college, guess what? You're going to get a lot of four-year degrees, a four-year college. But how do you work with nonprofits, community colleges, could be workforce agencies? So intentionally building your pipeline into those talent areas. And then I think for all companies, keep going back to say we know hiring is just the start, that we've got to focus on skill development, retention, advancement, and making sure that it's not just bringing someone in the door who doesn't yet have a four-year degree, it's supporting their ongoing development and advancement in education in the company. So let's really dig into these employer partnerships, which seem so powerful. I understand you have over 250 of them, of which I think over 40 from Fortune 100 companies. So you've really cracked this code of some kind. And some of the biggest ones, you mentioned Bank of America, I believe Microsoft, Amazon, and several others. Can you help us understand, is there a formula to this that you do? Is it unique for each each one of these? How, how are you thinking about these different partnerships? So I had a meeting for an hour and a half with the CEO of a $10 billion company yesterday, first time we had met. And my real question is to understand what are their needs for talent? Where do they have pain points for talent? Do they have a big middle skill workforce? And in this case, they do. And it's around technology, customer service, and business operations. And so I think our job done best is first listening to our clients to see what their needs are 
how do they view diversity? Are they happy with all of the pipelines of talent they have to build a diverse organization? How have they thought about skills-first hiring? How does that manifest in their own organizations? And what we say to them is, look, we are like the emerging talent specialists in this country. We can help you look at yourselves as to the practices you have. Are they equitable? We can help you implement better ones. If you need talent, you can work with us to get talent, whether it's through year up, you pro placement. But we have to start by talking to senior executives about what their needs are for human capital. And then if they have a desire to do this, to partner with them in a very professional, high quality manner so that this becomes part of talent acquisition. Like when I started Year Up, it was placing one or two people and it probably felt more like corporate social responsibility. It is now 100% talent acquisition. And therefore, you've got to make sure that it works with the systems the company has to bring talent in, develop advanced talent. In this case, you're just reaching into different populations and you're outreaching differently. You're onboarding people perhaps a little more thoughtfully if they haven't had the experience of working in a company like J.P. Morgan in the past. But yeah, we have great partners, and this is a movement in our country to skills-first hiring. In fact, the 110 Coalition, where we were instrumental in helping to start that organization. We provide a lot of the backbone operational support to start 110, but you now have 73 of the largest companies in the country committed to hire individuals who don't yet have a four-year degree into family-sustaining jobs. Right? This is a big deal. And these companies are lowering degree requirements. They're intentionally looking internally to say, what have we normalized that has made it harder for some than others? And how do we disrupt that? It is inspiring to see the way in which corporate America realizes they can be part of closing the opportunity divide by creating good jobs and making sure those jobs are accessible to communities that in the past did not have access to those good jobs. Yeah, that's fantastic. So strategic. I want to jump into your partnership with Google because this is how I learned about you all. And I think it's the Grow with Google program. And all of a sudden, you guys are there next side, Google helping to implement this program. So maybe you can talk a little about your role in that and sort of it's probably a year or so in. Like, what are you seeing? What is your your hope with something like this? And, and we'll go from there. Sure. So Google has been a great partner and we have huge appreciation for their willingness to create the next generation of great workers in this country by in the helping them upskill, helping them to gain certificates through their Grow with Google initiatives. So a range of areas and technology that Google is supporting. And for us, it's great because you get access to people who have put together some of the best technical training in the country. And the students, we launched cohorts in Seattle and Austin to start our partnership with Google and knowing that as these young adults earn certificates, whether it's in project management or IT support, that's like printing money for yourself, right? You ultimately, you're getting more valuable. And so we are excited to continue to build on that partnership, to roll it out to more cities as we prove it. Europe tends to prove things and then expand them. We're pretty careful how we do that. And I think the Google folks were really thoughtful about trying to create a fund that could help support the training of those individuals, which costs money. And by also, if successful, if students earn more than $45,000 a year, 
they pay back a small amount of that to ultimately get recycled for the next person in line, which is absolutely brilliant. So it's really an equity-based structure that you only pay back if you get a positive result and it gets recycled to give to the next person. That virtuous circle is powerful and I applaud Google for, for leading it. That's great. As I was thinking about that, about I don't think I asked this question earlier, but I did mention some of the tuition and cost to go to a traditional college. What is the cost to the individual to go to year up? So Europe is a free program. In fact, students are in a stipend when they come to Europe, both during the learning and development phase and during the internship phase of the program. So they're earning that stipend. They're getting often either free college credit or what's called credit recommendation through the American Council of Education. And these are young adults, all of whom come from low-income backgrounds. What we're trying to do is just provide them with the runway they need from which they can take off. This is our workforce. This is our talent. And they do not have the money to pay lots and lots and lots of money for college. So we've got to make sure we give them what they need to get in the game. The only one way we've now tested with Google is this kind of shared agreement, shared outcomes agreement, where if you do well, you pay back each month a small amount of money that ultimately goes to the next person in line. Which makes a ton of sense. Otherwise, Europe has to keep finding funders, which is kind of leads me to my next question. I've seen you guys have gotten some pretty substantial grants. I think the last recently, four and a half million grant from the Asadium Education Group, a big grant from Blackstone, the large private equity firm. So maybe you could talk a little about that, how grants work, how the funding works. I mean, it's got to be tiring trying to fund this budget every year. So we are really fortunate to have a, a wonderful development department at Year Up that does great work. So we will raise this year about $85 million of philanthropic support, which is significant in the industry and indeed in the country. I don't think many people in social services that have been started in the last 20 years raise more money than that. And we're fortunate there's a range of people in this country who understand that economic mobility is critical to democracy, right? So we have just, I think, very enlightened funders who believe this country has to live up to its ideals of opportunity for all, that the American dream should be within reach, right? It shouldn't be the American nightmare for a lot of people. And so I think our job is to help people to see how effective we are, how differential our work is, and then find a match between people who say, that's what I want to make happen with the disposable income I have. And you match those together and you untrap the energy that is trapped in money and turn it into a productive result for the individual and society. I consider fundraising a joyful activity to help people realize their most fervently held beliefs of how the world should be. And we partner with amazing companies, whether it's Blackstone, Ascendium, individuals who realize that this is possible. And with some additional capital, we can help a lot more people get access to economic mobility in our country. Yeah, so that's what I want to jump to as we look to close here. I, I read that you're looking to serve 10 times as many young people per year by 2030. So we're talking now in the tens of thousands, now you're approaching, you know, Ohio State University land, like one of the largest providers of talent into the economy, which is incredibly powerful. So the model works. Clearly there's need, there's candidates for this. 
bridge that gap. How do you get 10X here? So we have to adapt our model to continually reduce the philanthropy required per student. That can be just through productivity gain, through use of technology, through more efficient processes and systems, but also one of the main things we're doing is partnering with organizations that are already doing some of that training so we don't have to do all of it ourselves. So imagine partnering with community colleges, which is the largest post-secondary system in our country. So we expect as we go forward to evolve our model to hopefully be faster, require less philanthropy per student. Therefore, it is more scalable and you can get to the types of numbers that we seek, which is 10x increase in the access, we call it, for young adults who have access to our program. And at the same time, we're working incredibly hard to work with those big companies to help them adapt their practices. Because when they do that, think of how powerful this is. Bank of America had 2,000 of our students or more by now. But because they saw the efficacy of that, they saw it was a good source of talent, they said, help us to do this at a different level of scale. They worked with grads of life to learn, well, how do I do this at scale? They committed to hire 20,000 low-income individuals through their Pathways program. And they would tell you that they wouldn't have gotten there without seeing how effective Year Up was as a program and how this population could be a source of talent. So when we think about the future, 10x is increase in number of students. I think there's a 100x increase in getting big companies to fundamentally change the way in which they do their own talent management. And then it applies to young adults from any program, whether it's Year Up or many others out there. So there's an end game state here of influencing, in a positive way, our large organizations to keep adapting these practices to open up opportunity for many more people across this country, whether or not they came from Year Up or not. Yeah, it's so powerful. And again, you're taking such a great ecosystem approach. You're talking about employers, you're talking about existing college system, other providers, funders. And it's really impressive because you have to think about this from every angle because if one part of it's broken, if the employer does not onboard, does not mentor these young adults coming into the workforce, they're going to sink or swim. They're going to they're gonna sink. It's amazing what you're doing here. So look, we're closing up here. What have I missed? I think we covered a lot of ground, but what have I missed in, in Europe today and Europe tomorrow that you want to tell our audience? At Europe, we envision a future where companies truly become opportunity friendly, just like they learn to become environmentally friendly. And if you think of the past 25 years, companies have learned the tools, the frameworks, the systems, SASB has standards around this for what is considered material for a public company. The same thing needs to and will happen as companies become opportunity-friendly and figure out how do I welcome in a plurality from all different walks of life and ensure that those individuals are successful because you will not have a successful company 20 years from now that hasn't figured out how do you attract, retain, and advance talent from all walks of life. So we think the environmental-friendly movement will be paralleled by an opportunity-friendly movement with the same types of frameworks, standards, tools, accepted best practices, and that's going to be good for our country. So we are very, very bullish on that trajectory, 
and are very keen to play our part in building the field, in supporting large companies, in providing the thought leadership in the proof that this is good business as well as good for community. And that ultimately will drive and usher forth a better era where, frankly, the American dream is reality and not rhetoric for all of our citizens. I love it. My last question, part of what we love about education is that we've all had learning champions. Who has been a learning champion for you, and how has that person helped you in your life? Well, my best teacher, they often ask, who is your best teacher? My best teacher is the 10-year-old boy from Dominican Republic named David Heredia, who I met when I moved to New York City. And David taught me about the opportunity divide. He taught me what it was like to grow up as a person of color in this country. He lived with us over the years. And through that experience, I really started to learn things that I did not understand, did not know. And it changed the course of my life, without which I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So my best champion has been David Heredia, who's now in his 40s. My kids call him Uncle David. There's, I'm sure, a lot of smart professors out in the world and PhDs, but my best teacher was a 10-year-old boy. I love it. Gerald, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Thank you, Todd. It was a total pleasure, and I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. All right. Until next time, this has been an Educated Guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to an Educated Guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley University Services, please visit universityservices.wiley.com. 